Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepard. I'm a mastering engineer, and I run the Production Advice website aimed at helping you get the best sound, recording, mixing, and mastering your music. And I founded an event in 2010 called Dynamic Range Day, which is on Friday the 31st of March this year, and it's the inspiration for this week's episode. But it's not going to be very much about Dynamic Range Day because we already did an episode on Dynamic Range Day, which you can go back and listen to, and we'll put the link in the show notes. Joining me, as always, is John Tidy from Reaperlog.net. Hi, John. How are you doing? Hi, Ian. Hey, everyone. I'm doing great today. The topic this week is inspired by Dynamic Range Day because it's about loudness, and uh, it's about the difference between being loud and sounding loud. And I told John that, and he didn't really understand what I meant, so I should probably explain it. <laughs> to you guys as well, because you probably don't know what I mean either. So, I mean, if you know anything about Dynamic Range Day, you know that it's to raise awareness of the loudness wars and to try and persuade people to make their music more dynamic, partly because I think it sounds better and partly because making your music louder in a file, on a CD or an MP3 file or whatever, doesn't actually achieve anything. Because when it gets played back online, or when it gets broadcast on TV or radio, or even when people listen to it, it just gets turned down. The online systems do it automatically, and we do it straight away. The first thing you do when you play a piece of music is you adjust the volume to a comfortable listening level. So at that point, whatever loudness it was on the CD originally, or in the file originally, in comparison to whatever else it was before, doesn't matter. I'm going to pause there and ask whether you agree with that, John, because I know, well, I remember when I first sent you a copy of Dynameter to play around with, you told me that you kind of, your mixes were already uh, into the red and beyond before you'd started mastering <laughs> and that you were finding it quite challenging to get the dynamics in there. And I just wondered whether, because I know that you do a fair bit of work on some fairly aggressive genres and what mm -hmm. your feeling is about loudness. You know, I mean, do you... You're very polite whenever I talk about this stuff and you listen to me going on about it. But I mean, do, do you agree? Do you like to just today? I saw a review of Dynameter where the guy basically said, you know, I was mastering this project and Dynameter showed that it had gone too far. So I pulled the loudness back um, and offered that to the clients. And they came back and said, yeah, it's great. It pops so much more and it's got so much more space and depth in it, which is exactly what I find. Um, so uh -huh. it's fantastic for me to hear that. Um, I mean, have you found that or are you kind of still feeling like you need that super dense, aggressive feel for the stuff you're working on? Well, I think if we go back even further than when I got Dynameter, back to like beginning of Dynamic Range Day and when I did your Home Mastering Masterclass course and all that kind of stuff, um, the way that I approach mastering changed a lot and I do prefer the more dynamic and I never go for the most aggressive, loud masters now. I just try to find that sweet spot, which tends to be like with dyna dynameters set at 10 or uh, even at nine. And then it's a balance of, of my personal taste because sometimes my mixes themselves, just the amount of compression that I like to hear on my stuff already is a little bit hotter than Dynameter says it should be. And, and then it's a judgment of, do I go back to the mix or do I leave it because it sounds good? And is there any other way I can add dynamics in the master? So, so yeah, my approach has changed. The tools that we have now make 
it a lot easier to measure things properly. And you can inform yourself of what is the loudness in so many different ways now. And, you know, just kind of find a good balance of looking at the meters and listening and figuring out what's best for each song at a given moment. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that's really good. That's really good to hear. Yeah, Dynameter's good. And I was confused by it at first because it doesn't really, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not really a loudness meter. It shows you dynamics and it tells, it warns you mm. if you've over crushed it. And that's the main thing that was valuable for me because it goes into the red when you use too much compression. What, what's, it could still be in the red, but you could have your peak level low or too high. You know, mm -hmm. there's not yeah. always a one-to-one -one ratio of those things. It's it's a balance of dynamic range, peak loudness. Uh, you need a LUFS meter sometimes. You need a VU meter sometimes. You need to listen and you need to loudness match stuff and A, B, everything and all that kind of stuff. But just having these tools makes the job so much easier. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, I mean, I'd, I'd be honest, that's a challenge for me with Dynamator is I feel like when you've got it, and you're using it, it's really simple and intuitive. But to actually explain to somebody in a couple of minutes what it does and why it does and what they need to do with it is actually quite tricky. And mm -hmm. I think that kind of sums up the whole loudness uh, topic for me in the sense that in some senses it's really simple, but actually there are so many kind of different nuances to it. Um, you know, it it is still really hard for people to kind of untangle and, and unpick what's going on and figure out because you're absolutely right it's it's about making the decisions the the you know kind of balancing the technical considerations with what works musically um one of my favorite quotes about dynamic range day came from uh, steve lillywhite uh who was a guest way back on one of the earlier episodes um and he said uh, back in the day i used to hate dynamics but that was when i had a choice uh, and what he was, you know, that was, he came back from that era where actually we didn't have a ton of the tools that we have now. And it was, it was kind of more of a challenge to achieve the managed dynamics that, to, to get into the sweet spot than it is these days. These days, it's much easier to get into the right place and therefore it's much easier to go way too far. Um, and he's in the frustrating situation of watching the stuff that he's worked on just get crushed at the mastering stage. Um and, you know, he's now kind of wanting to reclaim that control that, uh, so that he can get the balance right for himself. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's the point of Dynamic Range Day is not to tell anybody not to make their music sound loud or be loud. It's just to understand the issues, to understand the trade-offs uh, and to make the best decisions for them in full knowledge of, you know, all this stuff that online loudness management will change the level, that people turn things down, that there's a difference between being loud and sounding loud, all this kind of stuff. So, you know, if we can uh -huh. just spread awareness, bring people up to speed, then as far as I'm concerned, that's that's mission accomplished. Um, and hopefully we'll get some great dynamic sounding music out of it as well. There are times when, especially like stuff that's mastered really badly, poorly, you can turn it down, but it still sounds loud and it sounds distorted. Like it, you turn it down because it's fatiguing, but it doesn't get less fatiguing. It's just quieter. It's just quieter in the room, but it still sounds nasty. There's been a few albums that I have that I can't really listen to more than like twice in my lifetime just because it's just, it's just mastered too badly. 
Poorly. Why do I keep saying that? Poorly. It's mastered too poorly. <laughs> <laughs> I would say mastered badly. What's wrong with saying mastered badly? Is that not grammatical? I don't uh, think I don't it matters. Know. I mean, it, anyway. Yeah. And that's a great example of the kind of thing that I want to talk about in this episode, because, you know, you just said there are albums that are mastered so poorly that they sound horribly loud when you put them on, you turn them down and they still sound horribly loud and they sound fatiguing. And that's one of my big arguments for not making stuff too loud. Um, but you made kind of one point there, which is that those songs are loud on the CD. The level is high. They have very limited dynamics. They're very squashed. They're very dense. And there's probably clipping. distorted. Yeah. Right. You have all of these side effects of the loudness process. And then you turn it down and suddenly it's not loud anymore. If they had mastered it and held the levels back a little bit so that it wasn't as distorted, it wasn't as dense, it wasn't as clipped, um, and it wasn't as squashed, then it would still sound loud. But even if you turned it down a little bit, it would then sound better because it would have more variety in it. You'd have more impact in you know the drums and uh, in the differences between the different sections of the songs. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. I think mm -hmm. the classic example of something that I would say that demonstrates the difference between being loud and sounding loud is an explosion, right? If you think of a recording of an explosion, I mean, an explosion is a loud sound. It just is. There's nothing you can do about it. Even if it's in the distance, you can tell that it's a loud sound. That's a lot to do with context, but the sound itself, you know, it's it's kind of a huge distorted thing. Uh, it has aspects of stuff being broken as part of the sound it kind of echoes around the space that you're in you hear it feeding back to you off the, the walls or the the hillsides or wherever it is you are that you hear this explosion and also our brain knows that an explosion is a loud sound so an explosion is a loud sound in the real world but as soon as you record it it's not a real sound in the real world anymore. It's an electronic signal on some kind of recording format. And at that point, you can take it and turn it down so that it's quiet. But I would argue that it still sounds loud because of all of those things that were part of the sound originally. Just like an explosion still sounds like a loud sound if you hear it in the distance, a recorded explosion that you play back quietly still sounds loud. And if I whisper... It's a loud sound because I've leant right in on the mic, but you can still tell that it's a quiet sound. Does that make sense? I think so. <laughs> was that really freaky and disturbing? That was. <laughs> what I should do is re-record that in binaural so that it's like off in one ear and it really, really sounds freaky and, and disturbing. Anyway. I'll fix it um, in post. I was just thinking whether you could. I need to get a dummy head. <laughs> Yeah, it's not. It's not and the same. We'll get, to, heard, we'll get to uh, the point where we just have binaural. the dummy heads record the podcast, and we'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> stay out of it. <laughs> Seriously, though, have you watched the uh, video that I just did for recordproduction.com? No, I haven't. Okay, if you, it's it's a demo of, of binaural recording. I mean, it's just me doing a little kind of two or three minute piece to camera. It, it's it's in my Facebook feed. If you go and listen to it, but the, there's some outtakes from the studio session um, that are actually really effective um, in terms of that. Because, yeah, when you take a voice and you pan it, it doesn't sound as good as if it's a true binaural recording. Anyway, 
So do we know that a recording of a whisper, it's a quiet sound because we've of our experience with whispers in real life? I think so, yeah. Just like we have an experience of explosions. But also, a whisper like the one I just did where I leant right in on the mic has a lot of other kind of cues involved in it. So it's very quiet. So you don't hear any of the... I mean, there's not that much room sound on my voice anyway, but there's a bit. But you kind of don't hear any of that because it's quieter. The sound doesn't reach the walls and doesn't bounce back as much and reach the mic as much. But also frequency content changes. You're not using your real voice. You're just using the the front of your mouth. Yeah, that's right. It's um, It's actually a trick that mastering engineers use all the time. I mean, if you think about, say, a classic rock album, where you have a full production number on there, and then you have an acoustic guitar ballad. Nobody presents a recording of an acoustic guitar ballad at a realistic level in comparison to the full rock number, because the rock number would be deafening and the acoustic ballad would be almost inaudible, because in real life, a guitar and voice is much, much quieter than a full band. Uh So what you do is you lift the level up so that they are different enough that one of them feels a little bit quieter than the other, but I mean, typically, I would say if I'm mastering that, the difference between a ballad and a and a full production number might only be two or three dBs, and maybe even the loudest moments of the of the ballad would get right up to the similar level of the rock band. Um, the trick is to get the balance right so that it feels right, but you can still hear the quiet song, you know, in the car, on earbuds, wherever. And and yeah, again, it doesn't sound unnatural to us when we listen chances are the acoustic ballad isn't going to be distorted uh it's not going to be bouncing back off the walls as though it's been amplified through a huge pa uh it won't be clipped it won't be super dense because you probably don't compress it as much as you would the parts of a full production number so all of those other clues that tell us that things are loud are not there. So it still sounds quiet, even though the level is quite high. So there's an example of the flip side. An explosion is a loud sound that could be played back at a low level, so it sounds loud, but you can play it back quietly, so it is quiet. Whereas you could have an acoustic ballad on an album, which is a quiet sound, but actually you play it back quite loud. So I don't know whether I'm being clear. I'm trying to stick to my theme of the difference between being loud and sounding loud. Basically, you know, if you reduce the level, you have made something quieter, but that doesn't mean it's actually going to sound any quieter. Does it? It's the difference between a a, a toy cow (laughs) is small, but the cows over there are far away. Ah, Father Ted. (laughs) Yeah, it's the intrinsic quality of something. There's all kinds of stuff that's built into the sound that gives us clues about how loud it was, I guess, originally, before it became a recording. And when you're making a recording, because microphones are not ears and speakers are not the real world, you know, a large part of what we do is creating an illusion. So you need to create the illusion of something being loud, and you can create the illusion of it being loud. I guess that's the point that I'm trying to get across without it having to actually be loud. Take the flip side example. If you took that acoustic ballad and just pushed it up and up and up into a limiter, it would get louder. In terms of the measurement on a loudness meter, in terms of the the peak to loudness ratio, it would get more squashed. The limiter would work harder and harder. It would probably start to distort at some point. It would get more dense. It would be louder, 
but I don't think it would necessarily sound that much louder. I mean, the level would be higher, right? But if you then took it and turned it down again, it wouldn't sound that much louder. I think it would sound really bad before it sounds as loud as the full band. So you'd probably want to stop before then. If you're just looking at the meters and matching the two of them, the acoustic would sound terrible. Yeah, exactly. On the other hand, if you took an acoustic ballad that was being played through a PA at a festival and it was cranked right up and it was on the edges of, you know, kind of distortion in there and then you could hear the sound of it slapping back off, you know, the fences and the um, the stands behind maybe and you record that and it's over the top of crowd noise and all the rest of it, then it would sound loud but you wouldn't necessarily have to push the level right up in order to limit it. I'm really not explaining this clearly, but the thing that I'm trying to get at is there are lots of people out there who think the way to make stuff sound loud is to push it up hard against a limiter and compress the life out of it. And actually, those are not very effective ways of making things sound loud. If you want to make say, things sound loud, you're much better off using some distortion Using some compression, sure, but not just over-compressing it, just compression to get it under control so that you've managed the dynamics effectively. Um, reverb can make things sound loud. If you take a really dry snare sound and compare it with the same snare sound with a decent reverb on it, the reverb can make it sound louder because it gives us the illusion that it's a sound in a space that's bouncing back off the walls, which is another clue to us that something can sound loud. Saturation can make things sound loud because we associate stuff that is recorded and saturated, tape saturation and all that kind of stuff can is that another clue as to what makes things sound loud. And I think maybe the I think maybe an extreme example of this was on the Dynamic Range Day broadcast a few years ago where I actually did a fake remaster of Death Magnetic by Metallica. So that's famously one of the loudest CDs ever and is really distorted and all the rest of it. But I took the uh, completely clean Guitar Hero versions that became available, that kind of made it an interesting example because people could compare the two. And I used a free VST plugin called Camel Crusher, which is a distortion plugin, to do my own remaster of Death Magnetic. And I used it to add all kinds of distortion and aggressive kind of saturation and pumping qualities to the audio. And then I loudness matched it with the original release of Death Magnetic by turning that down and played them side by side. And I'm I'm not claiming they sounded the same, um, but I definitely felt that you could get a similar aggressive distorted quality to the master using this plugin to achieve the distortion but it didn't have all of that peak limiting and really heavy dynamic compression that was there in the original master. So when you played them back to back, loudness matched. Actually, my version sounded louder than the CD released version having been turned down because it had more punch and impact left in it. It had more variety in the dynamics. And even, you know, even the distortion, if you run something through a distortion pedal or a, a plugin or whatever, when you look at the waveform, it has tons of peak information in it. If you then limit that, you can take away that peak information, but you probably won't make it sound any louder because the whole point of limiters is they're supposed to be able to lift 
the level cleanly. I mean, we talked about this in an earlier episode. I think the ozone limiter is another great example. I've mentioned before that it's pretty good limiter, but the problem I have with it is it's almost too clean. You kind of push the level up and up and up. You kind of don't feel anything's happening, and it's only when you disable it that you suddenly realise all of this life comes back into the sound. You know, because it wasn't adding the kind of the distortion and the, the side effects of traditional loudness, if you like, back in the day um, that we're used to. Because, you know, that's another thing is if you take loads of our favourite rock albums are mixed and mastered with compression on the stereo bus and a certain amount of pumping is part of that. You know, it's I think a certain degree of of pumping in the in the stereo signal is kind of part of that aggressive rock sound. Brick wall limiters don't actually do that. You know, they don't give you that kind of traditional compression sound. They just make stuff louder and shave the peaks off um, as cleanly as they possibly can. So what you get when you push something up into a limiter is density. You know, you get more of the sound squashed into a smaller dynamic range. And that is one of the properties of a loud sound. Uh, you know, if you uh, an electric guitar playing through a guitar cab with a load of distortion, you do have that natural compression element in there. It does reduce the dynamic range, but you have all this other stuff like the harmonics and the saturation effects and a degree of pumping in there. And I mean, if you're playing the guitar in the room with the cab, you know, there's an element of feedback involved in there. Feedback is another thing that can give an impression of loudness that has nothing really to do with the level. Uh-huh. So yeah, there's a ton of things that make things sound loud that have nothing to do with the level, um, and which is why I find it so frustrating when people, you know, they say that EDM has to have the super limited sound in order to sound right, or they say that heavy metal has to, whatever genre it might be, um, because I just think that's one aspect of what makes something sound loud. If you only use that technique to try and achieve it, A, you're missing out on a huge palette of other possibilities, and B, you're taking away from some of the stuff that will make it sound loud in the quest to try and make it sound loud. <laughs> Maybe I should have picked a different topic. <laughs> uh, well, let's talk about some of the, the practical things that people can do Maybe not even in in just mastering, but uh, in arrangement. A, a lot of this stuff, if you want it to sound loud, it comes down to your choice of instruments, what they're playing, what part of the frequency spectrum that they're playing in, how many layers of those things, how you're miking them. All these things kind of make a difference. I think one of the most important ones is contrast. You can't really have something that's loud unless you have something that's quiet. And too much limiting reduces that range and the quiet parts aren't quiet anymore and you don't get as much impact on the loud parts. Absolutely. And that's um, something that people talk about quite often. I think the first person I heard use this phrase uh, was Bob Katz, but I'm not sure that he came up with it was the idea of loudness potential. And in fact, there's a a YouTube video I did uh, years ago now, so much so that people in the comments are complaining that it's a really old video, but the content is still good. Um, where I sh- I actually show you how to make something really loud. Um, I kind of put a twist on it by ending up telling people why they shouldn't do it. Um, 
But, you know, the, the strategies are there. If anybody listening to this still wants to make their stuff loud, despite all the things that I've been saying over the last 30-something episodes, then, you know, that video is there. We'll put it in the show notes. You can you can check it out and try the techniques for yourself. One of the points, I actually end up adding some saturation distortion to the song that I'm working on there, because even when you've got it up to the level of the reference track that I was using for the demonstration, it sounds too clean. You know, the level is right up there. In terms of the measurements, it's as loud as the other song, but it doesn't sound as loud because it's really, really clean, which is kind of exactly what I've just been talking about. And that's a classic mistake where people, if you want something to sound loud, you need to start right at the beginning. Uh, you know, you need to design the arrangement with plenty of contrast, like you're saying. You need to play the sounds loudly, you know, um, I just mixed a project recently uh, for somebody and they kept asking me to make the drums sound louder. And I managed to achieve that to a degree by adding a little bit of distortion and, uh, you know, kind of little things. Oh, I used gated reverb, a real 80s trick. It's so short that you could barely hear it, but just to kind of add some extra bulk to the sounds. But the, the main problem with it was that the drums hadn't been played loud in the first place. You know, the guy just wasn't hitting them hard enough for the effect that ultimately they wanted for the song. Huh. Um, That's always a challenge. You mean going back and trying to fix something? Compressing a drum that wasn't hit hard enough in the first place to bring out tone just doesn't work. Not the way that you expect no. it to work. It's never as good. No, exactly. Not as not as well as you would like. It's Yeah, you can do a certain amount. Of, you know, same thing. You know, you can add a bit of EQ in the... To, you know, a drum that's hit harder is going to have more kind of upper mid-range content in it, typically. Um, you hear more stick. Um, you know, you can, so you can bring out those kind of frequency areas. You can try adding a little bit of saturation, all those kind of things, or or some other kind of distortion effect. Uh, but yeah, it's effectively, you know, it's, it's another get it right at the source effect. You're, you're kind of faking it after the event. So, you know, I mean, that's, it kind of sounds brain dead, but quite often... I see people who want things to sound really loud and they just haven't played it to sound loud. You know, I mean, even with a guitar, um, you could put pretty much anything through an amp simulator or you could reamp it to, to kind of get an aggressive distorted sound. But, you know, when if you hit a guitar chord hard, it sounds differently than if you hit it softly. And our ears pick up on those kind of clues as well. Um, you know, I mean, it's really obvious in terms of singing, uh, you know, if it doesn't matter how much you turn up somebody singing gently, they're not going to sound like they're screaming at the top of their lungs unless they actually were screaming at the top of their lungs. Um, mm. But the same thing applies to a lesser degree to instruments as well. And, you know, kind of built into that is the other kind of effects. If you have drums recorded in a in a live room, the harder they get hit, the more feedback you get from the walls, um, the more sound of the room that you're in. So... There's a good example of something that you can do if you don't have that, which is the, the kind of classic trick of heavily compressing the entire drum bus and then blending a little bit of that back in. Um, or some people kind of sometimes just stick a single mic over the top of the kit and really heavily compress and actually slightly distort that and bring some, some of that up into the kit sound. So you hear more of that room sound and it makes us feel like the sound is louder. That can be a technique, but an even uh -huh. better technique is to just get the guy playing it to play it louder in the first place. Uh -huh. Just today I ran some drums through my guitar amp, recorded in stereo and 
brought back in parallel. I'm probably just going to use like 90% of that for that one section of the song. But again, it's kind of more of a for contrast rather than for loudness or anything like that. Well, the interesting thing is that blending a slightly distorted copy of something back into the signal is actually a great way to make things stand out in the mix. Uh -huh. um, so this is kind of moving the focus of the topic ever so slightly because, well, I, you know, again, you come back to this question of what is loud? What's the difference between being loud and sounding loud? If you add 10% of a sl uh, heavily distorted electric bass sound to a clean bass signal, it can make the bass sound louder because our ears can pick out all of those distorted harmonics way down in the in the level and it helps us kind of disentangle the guitar sound from the rep from everything else that's going on it doesn't actually make it that much louder i mean maybe half a db or something but yeah. it makes it more audible in the mix which is what you might normally achieve by turning up the fader and making it louder so i mean there's another interesting case where you i guess that's making it sound a little bit louder without actually making it that much louder at all making it sound louder without changing the level and i think the whole confusion maybe today is that there is a difference between level and loudness and sometimes we say we want it louder but we need to turn it up you could just move the fader but sometimes you need to apply something to bring up the harmonics so that it's more apparently louder, right? It's the difference between apparent loudness and actual loudness. Because, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's A lot of what I'm talking about is a level difference versus a loudness difference. But the problem is, I mean, you know, part of all of this problem is we've got into, we've fallen into this trap of, I mean, even the official method of measuring the loudness level of something is, you know, we have loudness units, LUFS. I mean, everybody knows I'm a, supporter of using those because they're a more reliable way of measuring loudness than anything else we have right now but again you can take something that is really not loud like a whisper or like gently strummed guitar or something and you can just push the level up and a loudness meter will tell you it's getting louder right and the, uh -huh. the point is the the meter is just measuring the level i think you're right i think that it's easier to try and distinguish between the sound of loudness and the level. Those are two completely different things. So yeah, a really quiet explosion has a really low level, but it's still a loud sound. It's just being played back at a low level and the opposite can also apply. So let's keep going with the idea of loudness potential. So you want to play it loud. Uh, maybe you want to record it loud. This is where, you know, this is kind of... Probably not with a digital system, because the chances are if you crank the levels, you're just going to clip it and it will just sound unpleasant. Um, but this is where things like tape saturation plugins or actually recording something to analog tape comes in. Pushing the level too hard onto analog tape does create distortion, but it's a softer, more, quotes musical type of distortion often than you would get by clipping a, a D2A converter, certainly. And we again associate a lot of that with, you know, it has a, it's it's has something in common with overdriving an amp, um, other forms of of distortion that we're familiar with. So if you don't go too far with it, it can be quite a pleasing effect, and it can make things sound louder because you know, okay, so let's talk about distortion and and the fact that it adds harmonics. We touched on this in a couple of other 
episodes. If you push valves too hard, if you push amplifiers too hard, if you push tape too hard, what happens is you get distortion and the distortion adds harmonics and that kind of makes the tone richer. And if you're lucky in a not unpleasant way, and again, we associate all of that with loudness. Yeah, I think it's the ratio of harmonics to fundamental changes. So when there's more harmonics, we hear it more easily. It There's a point where it sounds clearer and not distorted. Uh, like it, it's, it jumps out of the mix or it just sounds more vibrant, more exciting. And you go too far and then that ratio changes and you're getting like more harmonics than original tone. Then it sounds harsh. You agree yeah, with that? I agree with that. And yeah, I do. Um, again, it's a, it's a case of balance. It's a case of finding the sweet spot. Um, you know, you've got to push it um, just enough, but not too much. So there's playing, there's recording, then there's mixing. Um, and this comes back to the, the whole contrast thing. I mean, an interesting little tangent is there was a bit of controversy a few years ago. Uh, a guy called... I'm going to mispronounce his name. I believe it was Emmanuel Deruti um, published a paper which got reported in Sound on Sound magazine, which originally had the title uh, that the loudness wars were not reducing the dynamic range of music, which is a fairly controversial thing to say because most people agree that they have. Um, the confusion was that he was using the new measurement system which includes um, a property called loudness range. Um, and the point about the loudness range is to try and put a number on the, the, the difference between the loudest and the quietest moments of the signal. Whereas typically the way that we tend to assess loudness, if you use something like the TT meter or my dynameter plugin or whatever, is to measure the peak to loudness ratio. So you're measuring how squashed the loudest sections are. Um, I think that's a big part of the problem with the loudness wars is that the loudest moments have got so damaged by this process that they just sound horrible instead of sounding pleasing. What hasn't changed over the course of the loudness war and what Emmanuel pointed out is that the difference between the loudest moments and the quiet moments is pretty similar. So the difference between a really loud chorus and the verse from a rock tune back in the 70s is probably similar to the difference between the loud section and the quiet section of a rock track in the 21st century. The difference is that the loud section of that 21st century mix or master is probably going to be really, really heavily limited and distorted. So yeah, the need to build those dynamic contrasts into a song has stayed the same. And actually, people are still doing that pretty much the same way that they always did. And that, again, is a case of balance because, I mean, everybody, I think, probably has come across this. If you allow the verse to drop too far back from the chorus, it just kind of loses energy. Um, again, it's the case of finding the sweet spot. If you push it up too far, there's not enough contrast. And when the chorus comes back in, it just doesn't hit you right. Whereas if you go too far, then, yeah, the verse just kind of disappears off your radar and you, you lose interest or just lose the kind of the the flow through the song or the you stop nodding your head or whatever it is you're meant to be doing. So there's playing, recording, mixing, which I guess is part of the whole arrangement thing. I mean, you know, we all know that the best 
mixes recordings and mixes almost mix themselves and i think a lot of that is because all of these things that we're talking about are built into the performance um if you can get those contrasts between different sections of the song right in the performance it makes it so much easier to mix and then ultimately to master um i've heard the statement that to get a loud master you need a loud mix do you agree with that like you have to plan for loudness in your mix yeah, well, I think that was, we're kind of getting towards the end of the process now. We've done performance recording, mixing, and now we're at the mastering stage. And yeah, I would agree. If somebody has ignored all those other elements, you know, if somebody, let's say somebody records a really kind of soft, gentle performance of a song that doesn't have much contrast between the sections. And minimal um, compression as well. Well, I was going to say if they've used lots of compression so that actually oh, okay. even what contrast there was in the in the thing has been evened out, you know, compression mm-hmm. in the sense of just kind of having softened out the differences, you're going to end up with something that kind of goes along going da 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 all the way through. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, there's no contrast, there's no nothing, no energy, no excitement. It's probably impossible to make that sound convincingly loud at the mastering stage. You know, maybe you could fake it a bit by automating some volume changes in there, um, maybe hitting some compression and some saturation or distortion to try and add a bit of energy back in there. You know, you might even tune the compressor or maybe use an expander or something to try and get more impact into things. Um, But as we've been saying all along, there's no way that's going to be as effective as if they had gone through the entire process leading up to that going okay this is how we want it to sound this is the vision it needs to sound loud it needs to sound aggressive and at that point you probably don't need to do very much at the mastering stage um you know you might do a little Uh bit of light peak limiting you might do some corrective eq maybe you add a little bit of more uh compression you know sometimes people don't use a bus compressor so you want to emulate that in the mastering process to get that kind of slightly pumping feel i mentioned earlier on so yeah, if somebody hasn't kind of followed through all those stages with the goal of making something loud, then it can be almost impossible to achieve that at the mastering stage. So there was this situation I had where I had a, an album to master and some of the stuff was kind of pre-mastered, um, but we couldn't go back to the original mixes or anything. So they're already pretty limited. There was maybe not clipping, but it was pretty much no headroom on a couple of the tracks, and then the other tracks were unmastered. And I could do so much with these unmastered tracks. I could make them more dynamic through automation. Um, I could, you know, really fine-tune the loudness, get into the the area that we like things to be. And these other songs, I could pretty much only turn them down. I could do a few tricks to kind of make them more dynamic, but the actual peak loudness ended up being lower than the ones that I mastered so like the peak loudness was down, but the actual uh, LUFS value was the same. So yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And there's there's kind of two interesting points that come out of that. I mean, the first one is just to say to people, if you're mastering something and somebody has sent you some stuff like John is describing that is already really uh, squashed, don't be afraid to turn it down, especially not if you're matching it with other stuff uh, that is more dynamic and that you can get a better result with. You know, very few people are going to notice that the peak level on song two was three dBs lower than it was on the other songs, providing the loudness is matched and the EQs work and the thing flows musically. So 
don't be tempted to do the opposite and take the loudness up to match the loudest stuff that you're given because then you're making everything sound worse for the sake of those songs. Yes, that was definitely the main concern with that project. I I tried things to get more peak loudness in there. I think I did like I think I ran Isotope um their declipper on some of the tracks and then like put that in in parallel just so that just to kind of reconstruct the peaks that weren't there. Or, and I use like transient shaping and stuff like that to kind of blend in some peaks in there as well so that it's not like, so I'm not turning it down three or four dB to get it into the 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 range where it sounds right to me and then have, you know, yeah. just have like quiet masters, right? Where it's not using the full, not using all the bits, as they say. <laughs> Well, I, let's not get into using the whole bits thing because that's a whole other tangent. <laughs> but um, the no, you, I mean, I'm absolutely right. And the, I mean, the interesting thing is that sometimes by adding a little bit of compression, you can bring some peak information back in there. And uh-huh. quite often, if something has been super squashed like that before it gets to you, it may not have enough bass. So if you bring some, if you reduce the level a little bit, so you've got the headroom to bring some bass back in, you can bring some back some apparent dynamics that way. You know, I mean, there's. There are kind of things you get that are just a lost cause. They've gone too far and you're never going to get them back. Um, uh-huh. But quite often, you know, that's that's a fairly extreme example. The other interesting thing about what you're saying is it's pretty much the exact opposite of what we've been talking about for the last half an hour yeah, or so. That's true. Like if, if you get something that's really crushed at the mix bus and you go into mastering, you can really only turn it down. You need headroom, but you also need some dynamics to work with as well to really be able to dial in your limiter the way you want it, have some room to add distortion if it needs it. So it's 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 kind of one of those things where you need to do that stuff on your mix bus, but also don't do it too much because your mastering engineer needs to do something as well. You're absolutely right. And I think, unfortunately, that's much more the situation that I get these days. You know, back when I started out, uh, lots of people working in home studios or kind of semi-pro studios uh, weren't aware of the mastering process, didn't use bus compression, maybe didn't use a ton of compression themselves. Yeah, typically the stuff, one of the things that you could bring to the table, if you like, as a mastering engineer, was to bring in some really cool compression and dynamic control as part of the mastering process. These days, the exact opposite is true. Now everybody knows all about it, and they all have all of these tools, you know, plugins and all the rest of it and more often than not stuff comes in it's too squashed it's too distorted and you're absolutely right there's nothing you can do with it as a mastering engineer you're just kind of the horse has already bolted you know um once again what we need is the perfect balance you know you you don't want to be at either one of those extremes you don't want to have something that was kind of recorded softly and all the rest of it and it's never going to have the aggressive sound that you want at the end it has no loudness potential in it you don't want to have something where the loudness potential has always been sucked out of it and it's just this kind of, you know, a sausage <laughs> coming at you. Um, you want some kind of balance. And, I mean, that's that's a real challenge. I mean, it's one of the reasons, actually, that uh, I think plugins like the TT meter and Dynameter are so valuable. You know, um, I have had people kind of criticize me and say, well, you shouldn't be mixing with your eyes and, you know, people should do what sounds right and, you know, you can't quantify any of this stuff. And, I mean, that's true to a point. When you've got to the point where you have the experience and you know how 
loud stuff needs to be and how it's going to be affected when it gets mastered or when you master it. But I think the value in these things is getting people through that learning process of, of training their ears. Uh-huh. It's also really easy to confuse yourself, uh, to be saturated from working on a song all day, and you don't really know what like, what is best for it um, 100% through the process. So you can, if, especially if you're not using reference tracks and things like that, you're not using calibrated monitoring, all those kind of things. Yes, don't mix with your eyes, but make sure everything else is dialed. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and it makes me think of uh, a suggestion for anybody who might be sending their stuff off to be mastered, you know, because um, I don't know, chances are if, you, if you're not already at that place where you know you're feeling in control of the dynamics and the loudness of your material, you're probably going, well, hang on, what's the advice? Do I crush it at the mixing stage or do I not? Do I? One thing you can do is get as close as you can in the mix and supply that to the mastering engineer, but also supply another version where you've either dialed back or removed that mix bus compression. Because then the mm. mastering engineer can hear where you were trying to go. And if he or she thinks it's successful, they will just use it. But if they can hear where you're trying to go and they think there's maybe something they can do that will achieve an even better result, they've then got the flexibility of the less processed mix. And I mean, that's something, I think I've said this on the on the show before, but I think especially given that it's Dynamic Range Day uh, on Friday, it's worth saying again, the, the number of times that I have received something that I thought was overcooked, that, you know, was pushed too hard, was too saturated, too clipped, too squashed, too distorted, asked the client for a more conservative version and had it and not been able to get a result that we both thought was better is zero. Every time I've been through that little process, it's the kind of thing you don't necessarily dive straight into because it probably means a delay for the artist. It means you're telling them that something unwelcome, which is that actually you think their mix could be better. You're possibly telling them something they don't believe in the sense that you're saying, if you give me something that's quieter, I can do a better job of making it louder. You know, there's a ton of reasons why you're going to get pushback from that conversation. So you need to really kind of feel confident going into that conversation. But when when you do that, when I do that, when I have done that, always it has been successful. I've always managed to get a better result. And that's not to say necessarily that different, you know, but because um, I think one of the problems with all of these processes is they're destructive for the most part. The ones that involve level where you push it up into limiting or clipping or saturation or whatever. Once they're done, you can't effectively undone them. You know, there are a few things you can do, like we've discussed, to try and trick it to make it kind of work and massage it into something that's a bit better. But it's always more effective to be able to do that part of the process in an optimal situation. So, uh, you know, you get mastering engineers who say, oh, you should never use a bus compressor. And I disagree with that. If you've been mixing the whole time with a bus compressor, then it's part of the sound that you're achieving and you don't want to switch it off because your mix will change and that would just be weird. But at the same time, if you haven't been mixing with a bus compressor, you don't want to suddenly just slap one on at the end because you think, oh, I should be doing this because that will change the mix and make it sound strange. Uh -huh. You know, do what you've been doing, get the best result that you can, and then either make sure there's enough time so you can have a conversation with the mastering engineer or send two versions so that he or she can choose which is going to get the best result. Or yourself if you're doing the mastering. 
give yourself two options. Yeah, that's a great point. Because in theory, if you're mixing and mastering, you could just kind of do whatever you liked during the mixing process, recording and mixing process. Then you get to the mastering, you think, oh, that hasn't worked and go back and start again. But actually, it's more about just understanding how the different stages of the chain fit together and how you can get the best results out of the final product, which is what this is all about and is a great place to end the episode, I think. Okay. So uh, thank you very much, John, for helping me arrange my confused thoughts into some semblance of order. Absolutely. It's fun. And if anybody is listening to this, uh, please do check out Dynamic Range Day. You can go to dynamicrangeday.com. There is a ton of information there. There are some memes that you can share if you find them amusing. Uh, There are blog posts. There's all kinds of stuff. I will be doing a webcast on... There are definitely some infographics. (laughs) Um, Share it on Twitter and Facebook and Pinterest and Tumblr and... Exactly. No, share the hell out of it because is, that's how. Is there a contest this year? The events. There is. We are giving the award for the uh, best sounding dynamic album of the last year or so. There is no competition this year. I'm afraid. It was a ton of work to organise, and actually, it just got a bunch of people who wanted to win the gear involved. I don't think it really helped with people engage with what the event was truly about. So. Uh, mm-hmm. If you were hoping to win lots of free gear, then I apologize this year. That's that's not an option. Um, but please do uh, get involved now in the week leading up to the event. Uh, in past years, you know, it's been great. Everybody's got involved, but you have a ton of activity on the day and then it kind of disappears. We will spread the word further and get more people involved and thinking about the issues if we can spread it out over a bit of time. So please do share some stuff now so that other people are aware of the event and can get involved on Friday because that's what it's all about and there's also a ton of resources on the website there so you can find out more about all the kind of topics we've been talking about here and we will include more links in the show notes on themasteringshow.com if you want to check those out please head over to john's site reaperblog.net take a look at what he's up to there my site is productionadvice.co.uk we're both on social media you can find our contact links there Thanks to Kaylee Law for providing the music, as always. Thanks, John, for mixing and editing the show, as well as being my co-host. And thanks to you for listening. 